0: All right, well, I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll get the morning started. Lord, we come before you thankful for the opportunity to study your word. Uh, We come before you thankful for a warm place to gather, thankful for women downstairs who are loving on our kids, teaching our kids the word of truth uh, so that they may not depart from it. And so God, we just ask that you be with us this morning as we study a passage that in our modern mind seems a little wonky, um, seems a little bizarre at times, but in fact, by the end of the day, hopefully we'll be able to show and you through me will be able to show that this is in fact um, an image into who you are and what you expect of your people. And so, Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Anybody read this week's passage and think, good luck with teaching that? <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, I'm up this week. What are we learning? Oh, no. Why did I assign this to myself? So thanks, Jeech. Yeah, um, I, uh, I love creative writing. So when I was in grad school, uh, part of the electives that I had were I took creative writing classes where we wrote different prose and poetry and different things like that, and we read a bunch of essays. And one of the things that I read during this time was a, by a guy named Donald Murray, and when he wrote is the the title of the article is All Writing is Autobiography. All writing is autobiography and some people totally agreed with him and then some people took him to task and responded to his essay and all that but it became this this topic of conversation around people who write and they just go can you truly write anything without revealing something about yourself and I tend to agree with Donald Murray I think most of the time when people are writing they begin to reveal what they care about they reveal what they're like they reveal I mean in some ways just the vocabulary they use how they feel about certain people how they feel about certain issues the same can be true of our Instagram accounts right it shows you either what you want to reveal about yourself or what you wish was true about yourself if you if you follow my Instagram account you know I love cats and my niece and nephew right and and that's kind of it and so yeah I I think a lot of times we we inadvertently or maybe even purposely reveal much about ourselves and I would argue that this section in in this in this book of Exodus is part autobiographical about God that in this writing what we're actually going to see is that there's a lot of God that gets revealed through the law You've heard me say it and you might have heard other people around here say it, but the law is both regulatory in that it regulates what our behavior should be like, but it's also revelatory in that it reveals to us what God is like. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the different sections of, of this law code, this passage between when the Ten Commandments were given and then when they're going to make a covenant and the next week when, when we, we move on and they make covenant with God. And this is what God is saying, what it means to look like the people of God. And through this, God's going to reveal much about himself to us, and in turn, it'll show us how we are to act as as children of God. And so let's look at this section. Right away, one of the things you might notice about God is that God wants worship. God cares about worship. You know how I know that? Because this section starts with and ends with regulations for worship. It starts with and ends with regulations for worship and that was purposeful. A lot of what God is doing in this law and we'll see this in other places is that God is writing it and telling Moses in such a way that it's easier for people to remember. And so right away we talk about individual worship individual worship, and then God is later going to have, we're going to have lots of chapters about the tabernacle. We're going to have lots of chapters about the priests and how to make sacrifices and what all of that looks like. And we're going to know what it looks like as a people of God to gather and worship in the, in the time of the Exodus. But here is an opportunity for us to see that God also cared about individual worship. And this is really important. This is really important because what we're going to learn is that there are going to be times in corporate worship where women weren't allowed in certain places. They weren't allowed in the Holy of Holies. Only priests were allowed in the Holy of Holies and women weren't allowed to be priests. And so a lot of people go, gosh, man, it's so great that we live in the New Testament time because we can boldly go to the throne of grace. And I would agree that it is better for us, but it doesn't mean we wouldn't have been allowed to worship. God tells us that we can make an altar of uncut stone. We can make an altar of simple things. He doesn't want this ornate, a glamorous worship when we come to him individually. He wants simple, pure worship that we would have been invited into had we been around during this time. You may be wondering yourself, why can't you have steps or anything like that? Well, um, just so you know, in the ancient years, they didn't wear underwear, and if you had steps then what you were exposing to the altar below you was your nakedness. And in the Jewish culture, that is uh, really inappropriate. And if you think back to Noah who gets drunk and exposes his nakedness or David who dances around when the Ark of the Covenant comes in and his wife Michael's like, you nasty, stop that. <laughs> yeah, and so God's like, I don't need anything ornate and I don't want you to do anything that might cause you to worship inappropriately. said, just come simply and purely before me. But it's important that we start off. What does it look like to be a part of God's people? Right away, God says, hey, come to me individually. It's important that we do that. And then on the back end of it, he says, also come to me corporately. We we get the passages about the Sabbath. We get the passages about the the feast and every seven years and things like that. Through this, it shows us that God really does care about his Sabbath. Not only does he mention it in the 10 commandments, but he reminds us again right off the bat, I'm serious about this why? Well, one, because it gives us the opportunity built into our week for weekly worship, for us to stop and remember who God is, for us to stop and remind ourselves that we can trust him for our provision. Not only that, but built into the Sabbath was provision for the poor. Part of being in corporate worship is that you look out for the poor among you. You might have read the parts where it says every seven years you're going to leave the ground fallow, fallow and then poor people can come and, and glean from that. And you might be thinking to yourself, gosh, if every seven years nobody's growing anything, how can they go a whole year without work? Well, that's probably not what God had in mind. Instead, God's like, hey, as a farmer, you might have had a wheat field and a barley field and olive field, or I, I have no idea what grows in Cana, so don't like quote me on that. I bet Lucina knows though, so I should have just asked her. <laughs> but yeah, so they might say, okay, this year the barley field grows and, and then the next year it, grow- it doesn't grow. You leave it alone. And then the next year, this one you leave alone. And then, so you're rotating as a farmer. So it's not that you get every six years you're working and then the seventh year you're not doing anything. But what God is showing them in this is he's making provision for the poor among them. Part of worship is caring about those among you. And this is a really beautiful thing. Worship gives us time for renewal. It gives us time for focus on God and it shows us what God desires for us. And so what's the big so what for us today? Well, my question here is, is are you not only corporately worshiping, but are you also individually worshiping God? That's part of what it means to be a believer in God is that you don't just have to wait for Sunday that Monday you worship and Tuesday you worship and not in some really opulent, extravagant way, but you simply come before the Lord and offer him your praise and your worship on a regular basis. And I love that God desires that for us because in that is our good, right? When he's most glorified in us, when we are most satisfied in him, worship is is not only glorifying to God, but good for us. It gives us renewal and sustenance and it recharges our batteries. What a kind God that he would make that part of what it means to be, be his child. We move on and, and we learn in the next section, not only does God care about the poor in corporate worship, but God cares about the, the poor in a really big way. In verses uh, 21, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, we learn about the slave laws. And one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that when you're reading stuff in the Old Testament, it's really easy to want to take our modern mindset and infuse it back into the Old Testament. And when you do that, it can be really dangerous because you read things and you go, that seems absolutely atrocious. And you're right. If God today were to come down and tell us some of these things, we'd go, wait, wait, wait. And so it's important when we read these things that we read it in the context that it was delivered. Slavery in the, in the Old Testament context was not about race, it wasn't about power, it was about making provision for the poor among you. There were people in, in the Hebrew culture, notice in the text it doesn't say take a foreign slave, it says when a Hebrew wants to, to come into slavery, that's allowed. It wasn't forever, it was for seven years. And then they were set free. Not only that, we know in other places that let's say you came into slavery under a slave master and they were cruel, there's a law in Deuteronomy that says if you escape from them, you are free. You do not have to go back. This wasn't a provision about forcing people into harsh conditions. Instead, this was a way to go, you are not able on your own to make provision for yourself and for your family so you can sell yourself into slavery. You can choose to do this as a way that you can be provided for. I would argue it's not ultimately God's ideal. I think what God is doing is he's making accommodations for a culture that he's coming into time and space. We know this because when Jesus comes and Paul writes about it, he says, now there is neither slave nor free, male, female, Gentile, all that. But he's saying there is no distinction among God's people. And so keep in mind that although we look at this and if we want to infuse our colonial understanding of slavery into this, it would seem really, really grotesque but what's going on in this culture is that God is trying to create conditions that are favorable for the slaves among the people. And for those slaves, if they didn't have this option, would be destitute with no opportunity for protection, no opportunity for provision. Obviously we go on and we have a little bit more of a uh, uncomfortable section about female slaves. And I would argue this is concubinage. And again, this isn't exactly God's ideal. If you ever want to look at God's ideal, you go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and see that God made man and woman, and he desired for them to be together. But in the Garden of Eden, when they chose to sin, the world became fractured, and God is incrementally pushing us towards Eden. And so one of the things about women in this culture is they had no rights, no property, no way to be protected. And so God coming in is making a way and part of what he's saying in here is he's saying, hey, look, if you wanna take another wife, you can't reduce the provisions for your first wife. God's protecting the women in a way they wouldn't have received protection in any other culture in this time. He's trying to protect them from being cast away or thrown out or discarded as if they were property. Later, Paul's gonna tell us how do husbands love their wives? As Christ loves the church, be willing to die for her, love her, care for her, cherish her. Again, if we want to know God's best, we always go back to Genesis 1 and 2, or we look ahead to Revelation to see how it's all going to be restored. But while God is working in time and space, we see that he's incrementally pushing the culture towards a better way. People of God should make it better, always, always. And so God makes provision in these times. He's attempting to protect. He's attempting to to care for. And so what's the big so-what for us is that we too should care about the poor, it should be an integral part of our walk with the Lord. And I don't know exactly what that looks like for each of us. I mean, some of you have, have organizations and some of you do things in, in, in with our West Dallas partners, but we have an entire external focused ministry that has opportunities for us to care about the poor among us or the poor within us. And I think it's, it's critical that as Christians, we view this as part of our mission because that's what the people of God do. It's what sets us apart. It's what Christians have always done. The, the first missions, the first, the first hospitals, the first everything were always pioneered by Christians. We should be outpacing everyone in this enterprise of caring about the poor among us. What else does God care about? Well, in chapter 21, 12 through 32, we learn that God cares about justice. Um, in most ancient Near Eastern cultures, if somebody died, it didn't matter if it was accidental or not, it was the obligation of the family of the victim to then seek re- vengeance, to seek revenge. And God does something really unique here that's unknown of in the ancient Near Eastern culture And that he says, hey, look, if it was an accidental death, we're not going to kill the person for that. We're going to create a city of refuge for them to be able to escape. Why? Because God cares about justice, not revenge. And this matters. Because most of the gods that people believed in at this time, they were petulant. They could be bought. You could sway them over with with crude acts or crude sacrifices or things like that. And you never knew if God was going to deal justly with you. And everybody wants revenge until they're the offender. The truth is, is, we need justice. I need justice because I am the offender. And so oftentimes we think of ourselves as the victim and then we want God to be revengeful. But whenever I'm the offender, I really want him to be just. And so it's a good thing that we see that God is just in these these passages. He he expects us that when a life is taken, it's fair that another life be taken. And, And that seems extreme, but his point is life is valuable. And what often would happen in the ancient Near Eastern culture is that if a rich man killed a poor man, then there was no retribution. There was no justice. The rich man just got off. Might was always right in the ancient Near East. And God comes in and he levels that and he says, no, we're gonna do an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. When you cause harm, it will be paid back to you, not always in kind, but in scope. One of the small caveats too here, if you're reading through in chapter 21, verse 15, it it talks about if you strike your parents, you're gonna be put to death. And then in verse 16, it talks about if you kidnap a man, you're gonna be put to death. And then in verse 17, it says, if you curse your parents, you're going to be put to death. So we go 15 parents, 16 kidnapping, 17 parents. And you're like, hey, that's like, if you were an English teacher or you were editing, you'd go, these are out of order and you should clump them together, right? Anybody do that? You're trying to like edit Moses, anybody? Actually, what it's showing us is how they often wrote, and you'll see this throughout these passages, they're called chiastic structures. And what it was meant to do is, is most of the people during this time would have to know the law by just memorizing it. And so it was a way to easily be able to memorize parents kidnapping parents, parents kidnapping parents. So you're going to walk out of here today and go, parents kidnapping parents. You got it. Don't hate your parents. Don't kidnap somebody. Don't curse your parents. Well, what does that reveal to us? What well, reveals to us that God expected us to know his law. He even makes it simple for them to memorize it. So, part of the corollary also is that we, like the psalmist, need to say, I meditate on your law day and night. May it never depart from me. It was expected that people knew the law. And so, I think it's expected that we should know the law. And so, for all of you in here today, I applaud you for being here. I mean, I know there's other things you could be doing on a Wednesday morning. I hear the arboretum's open, right? uh, There's this Nickel-rama place in Garland, Texas. (laughs) All the arcade games are in Nickel. You could be there but you're not, so yeah. But yeah, no, God cares about justice. I also wanna note that God absolutely cares how we treat our parents. And why does he care about that? God cares about families. And when you begin to see God reiterate things multiple times, you begin to see what God cares about. And God cares about family because we are a family. The people of God are a family. And if you forsake the family that God has given you here on earth, what makes you think you won't forsake your heavenly family? your mother and your father, for better or for worse, here on this earth is what God has given to you. And so we owe them our honor, we owe them our respect. And we see that in God's writing over and over again. So if God cares about justice, what's the big so-what for us? Well, we should seek justice and not just when it pertains to ourselves. You better believe when you're wronged or your kid is wronged, right? We are quick to be like, justice, justice. But what about when your neighbor is wronged? What about when your enemy's wronged? We should seek justice because it is a value that is intrinsic to God's character. We should care about justice, not just when it pertains to us, but just because justice in itself is something that God created and he wants us to care about. He tells us in Micah we should seek justice, right? And so we should seek it not just for ourselves, but in everything we do. I have jury duty on, on Monday, right? And what's everybody's first reaction when they get the notice? Yeah. Which is still mine. I'm a sinner. I'm just telling you. But as I get this jury notice, which by the way, this is the first time in my life. I'm 31 years old and I've dodged it for years because I've been in grad school most of my life. If there's any benefit to being poor and in grad school, it's that you don't have to do jury duty. So just keep that in mind if you're considering going back to school. So I finally got it. And my first response, as everybody else just, ugh. But then I thought, no, no, no. Why wouldn't you want me on your jury? I believe in the value of justice. And not because I'm great, but because God told me to. As Christians, we shouldn't want to be under, no, I mean, don't hear me say that you should be volunteering all the time. But yeah, we should seek justice for the oppressed. We should seek justice for the poor. We should seek justice for those among us who maybe are often ignored in the law because they're not valuable in society's eyes. Uh, Kim Graft is in here. I think I saw her. There she is. I love that Kim Graft champions international justice mission. In fact, this summer, she got to go on a trip and see firsthand what it looks like to rescue children out of sex trafficking, to rescue the poor out of poverty. And I believe that there are organizations that we can be a partner to that shows that we value this as much as God expects of us to. So God cares about worship. He cares about the poor. He cares about justice. And God cares about relationships. Chapters 21 verse 33 through 22:15 we see this. This section's all about retribution. When you cause harm, you pay it back. God is clear that when we wrong someone, we make it right. Now, th- this might seem like an extension of justice in some ways, but part of what he's doing here is he's going, hey, not just are we worried about capital offenses, not just are we worried about when somebody wrongs you personally, but let's say they harm your property. Let's say they harm your ox or your whatever and they dig a pit and all these things that you're like, gosh, this seems like a lot of loss. But what he's worried about is when that happens, relationship is broken. And when relationship is broken, we can't function like the community of God that he wants us to. Watermark is huge on conflict resolution. We've spent the entire month of January talking about it, it was a feature of our Better Together conference we just had, and the reason why we do that is because we believe, just like this text tells us, that relationships matter. So when you wrong someone, you make it right. And God tells you how you can do it. Not skimping by, not like, oh man, I wrecked your Ferrari, so I'll let you borrow my Vespa for the day. Hope it works out. Right? No. You, actually, when I moved to I, when I when I first came to Dallas, a very gracious family allowed me to live with them in the Park Cities, and my sweet mom called me and she was like, "Hey, we're upping your liability." Well, I didn't have liability, but she's like, "We're upping your insurance because you may rear end a car that you can't afford to pit, you know, fix." And I was like, "I was like, you are right, and that is wise." So, but yeah, we make things we make things right because relationships matter. Relationships again, might is not right. What would have happened in the in the ancient Near East and every other culture is that if a rich man caused a poor man harm, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. But God says, no. If anybody causes harm, we fix it. We fix it. And so, what does that mean for us today? Well, we fix what's broken. We do conflict resolution. We say, I'm sorry. When we, we break something, we don't hide it, right? We, we, we teach our children this, right? I mean, how many of y'all were that kid who broke a window and you hid? And then your parents were like, no, you're gonna go fix it. Why? Because we don't want the neighbors to hate us. Yeah, it's not about the window. It's about the relationship behind whatever we broke and we need to make sure that we keep our relationships intact. So God cares about relationships and we should too. And then finally, in the last section, 22, 16 through 23, 9, we learn that God cares about outsiders. We see a lot of laws about the sojourner. We see a lot of laws about, about those who might come into the community of God's people. And we see that God is fiercely concerned about this. You may be asking yourself, then what does sorcery, bestiality, and worship of false idols have to do with that? Well, um, one, that was weird, right? (laughs) But uh, you didn't have to write it if it wasn't happening, so just let that sink in for a second. But two, what all of these do, the sorcery, it means you were conjuring up false, false spirits. You were you implying to people outside of the community of God that there is hope and answers outside of God's wisdom, which is just not true. Bestiality was a common practice for those in the, in the cultic practice of, the, of Cana. And so they believed by sleeping with these animals, they could conjure up the favor of that God that represented that animal. And so again, you're, you're demonstrating false worship or even just worshiping false gods. And so what you're doing is if the community of God is supposed to come together and say, this is what it means to follow God, and then you're allowing people in the community of God to do things that would lead others astray, that will not be tolerated. That will not be tolerated. And this is a good thing. Like, we're supposed to be the the family of God here, so all of us should be proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and three days later, he rose again. And so we all are in agreement. We all come to church. And then think of the weak among you, your niece, your nephew, your daughter, your son, your whoever, your neighbor, your whatever, your person that's not fully into the people of God, but you sure do want them to be. And all of a sudden, you look over, and they're hanging out with the one person who claims to be a Christian, but keeps saying things like, well, Jesus wasn't really God. I mean, he's just a good teacher. I mean, God just wants you to be happy. He doesn't care if you're obedient. And suddenly you're like, I think I want to kill that person for talking to them. Yeah, because it shouldn't be tolerated. Now look, there's a big difference between the person who's outside of the camp of God saying crazy things, but the person who's inside the family of God, who's claiming to be a family of God, who then says things that are counterintuitive to what God holds to be valuable and true, that cannot be tolerated. The family of God should always be a safe place for outsiders. Our church should be a safe place for outsiders that when they walk through these doors, they hear nothing but the truth of the gospel in its entirety, in its clarity, and without any sort of false pretense or lie. And so it just can't be tolerated. And that's really important. We see this in Jesus' life as well. Jesus is walking around with his disciples and he looks and he says, hey, you see these little ones? If anybody causes one of them to stumble, it's better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and for them to be flung in the ocean. And a lot of people believe that when he says these little ones, he's not just referring to children. He's talking to people who are weak in the faith or new in the faith. And he's saying the consequence for leading them astray is for you to fling yourself in the ocean with a millstone around your neck. Jesus was being hyperbolic. Do not throw anybody off a bridge with a millstone around their neck but it shows you the severity of what he believes to be true about this. What is this showing? Us? This is showing us that the people of God need to hold their theology tightly. We need to know what we believe and we need to communicate it clearly because it's far more detrimental to the people around us at times than sometimes it even is to us. Paul tells Timothy this. He says, watch your life and your doctrine closely because in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So as the people of God, we need to watch our theology closely. We need to know what we believe about God and only speak what is true about him. So what's the big so what from all of this? Well, one, if you've been boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, stop. Stop. Just kidding. Actually, that last, last thing, that was a just so you know, that was a cultic practice. The belief was if you did that, then your goats would somehow be more fertile if you would boil a young goat in its mother's womb. So again, God is saying, don't, don't believe in these old wives' tales, don't believe in witchcraft, don't believe in anything weird. I'm the one that controls fertility. I'm that that's what that means. So that's not actually the big so what. I just knew people would have questions about that. But what's the big so what? Well, the big so what is, is that that God's word always reveals more about God. And when we sit in it, sometimes it can be awkward and weird at first, but the more we look into it, what we realize is that God is so incredibly different than any other God who's ever claimed to be a God and his people should be different than every other people in the world. It's why we, we, we read God's word, not simply so we know how to behave. We read God's word so we know what God is like, because whatever he's like, I want to be more like that. Whatever his son's like, I want to be more like that. And not so I get some gold star because I've been obedient that day, but because that's what it means to walk with God. And that's what it means to be a safe place for others to walk with me. And so I, I, I don't, I don't do it perfectly. I don't, I don't do it perfectly at all. This Sabbath, this idea of rest, I have absolutely failed in the month of January. Like I'm like literally physically feeling it. And so what do I do with that? Well, I run back to God and I go, I haven't, I haven't done it perfectly. And he says, that's okay. Confess it and let's press on. But what's so great to me is that when I run back to him, I don't hear him going, you're a massive failure and you're not worthy of being a people of mine. Instead, I hear him saying, hey, child, this is why I value the Sabbath in the first place, because it's hurting you. It's hurting you. And I love you. So come on back, get some rest, and we'll do this together. And so what I want to invite you guys to is as you continue to learn Exodus and as you continue to learn more about the laws as we're going to do in the next two weeks, my hope is that as you do them, you'll learn more about God because it'll blow your mind how much he loves you. And so much of the regulations that we have are not so much about that we'll be obedient children, but because it goes well with us when we do it. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word and that uh, even, even Peter says that sometimes it's difficult to understand Paul and... Um, God, your word at times can be difficult or maybe it seems old. And yet when we sit, your spirit illumines us, your people around us talk about it and suddenly we start mining treasure out of this ancient text. God, I praise you that something that was written 3,500 years ago is still valuable today. And I praise you that you've given us the ability, the minds and the hearts to believe what is true about you and then the, the hands and the feet to be able to live it out. And so God, just be with us today as we seek to honor you with our lives. Help us to know you more and in return, a lot of that to affect the way we live so that others around us will see that we know and love you and we're different for it. That's in your son's perfect name I ask these things. Amen. Call me into